Well, last Sunday, Lane introduced our summer sermon series on the hard sayings of Jesus. And I have to say, I'm quite excited about this series because, well, Jesus doesn't always say things that are easy to swallow, does he? They're either hard because we, we don't understand them, or they're hard because they meet with resistance in our hearts and we really don't want to do them. And so when Lane asked me uh, which hard saying I wanted to talk about this week, I, uh, the one that popped to mind immediately is the one found in Matthew 5, 21. Turn it on. Might work. There we go. Thanks, Alex. This one in Matthew 5, 21 to 22 that says, You have heard that it was said to the ancients, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be subject to the fire of hell. Now, every time I read that passage of Scripture, I find myself getting hung up on the last sentence, wondering what the big deal is. I mean, I understand that it's probably not a good thing to call somebody you fool, but is it really deserving of such an extreme punishment as the fire of hell? After all, I did grow up in England where... Uh, insulting one another, especially your friends, was something of a national pastime. And, <laughs> and if the punishment for calling somebody a fool really is the fire of hell, then I'd better start searching eBay, eBay for an asbestos fire suit in my size, because I'm pretty sure I've done that more than once in my lifetime. What makes this a hard saying of Jesus, at least in my mind, is that the punishment does not appear to fit the crime. The consequences of saying something seemingly so trite as, you fool, appear to be so extreme. Is Jesus really saying that calling someone a fool, just, even just one time, is enough to condemn a person to hell? An eternal burning fire? Or is there something more to what he is saying that is not immediately obvious? Let's look at our passage again and see what we can uncover, starting with verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the ancients, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now that part I get. The ancients would have heard those words, do not murder, as the sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments brought down uh, from Mount Sinai by Moses, and you would have been hard-pressed back then, just as you would today, to find somebody who didn't agree with that commandment. Not murdering people is its kind of a universally held value, no matter where you go in the world, isn't it? And when someone does do it, there's general agreement among the general population, that what the person did was wrong and that some kind of severe punishment should be meted out. It's a black and white issue and a common benchmark that we often use to sort out the bad people from the good. 
a measuring stick sometimes even of our own goodness. For instance, if you were to go downtown or somewhere and, and ask someone if they were a good person, they would likely say something like this. Yes, I think I'm a good person. After all, I've never killed anyone. Right? But is it really that cut and dried and that simple? A self-righteous response, and the one that many of Jesus' listeners would have given, would be, yes, I've kept the sixth commandment by not murdering anyone, and therefore, I'm still a good person. Now, I should point out here that this passage of Scripture is taken from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, in which he takes many of the commandments off of the cold, hard stone tablets on which, which they were written and, and applies them and brings them to the warm, living flesh of the human heart. And like a master surgeon, he opens up our hearts so we can see what is really going on in there. Now, when it comes to murder, I would hazard a guess that no one here this morning has actually done that. Show of hands for many... No, let's not go there. But how many of us have done that in our hearts? I won't ask for a show of hands for that one either, because I think we, we all know the answer to that one. The commandment found in Exodus 20.13 says, You shall not murder. And it speaks only of the end product of murder, the definitive action itself. Whereas Jesus here in Matthew 5.21-22 talks about its beginning, about how and where murderous thoughts are birthed, how they gain a foothold in the human heart, and how they can manifest in increasingly destructive ways. Essentially, Jesus is taking the, the small circle that you and I like to draw around bad people, such as murderers, etc., and widens it out to include anyone who has ever had those kind of thoughts in their heart, which would certainly put me inside that circle, and perhaps some of you too. And he does this in the following verse by talking about three common stages humans go through as we progress from being angry with someone to, well, committing murder in the heart. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, will be subject to the Sanhedrin, and anyone who says, you fool, will be subject to the fire of hell. Which is Gehenna, by the way. It's, it was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem that was always on fire because they kept throwing more and more garbage on there, and it became a symbol of, of hell. Now, it's important before we go any further to qualify just what kind of anger Jesus is talking about here because there are really two basic types. Firstly, there is righteous anger, the kind of anger we feel when we come across injustices, such as abuse of children or discrimination. We call it righteous anger because it's aroused in us when we see things that, well, just aren't right. 
Things are not happening the way God meant them to happen. It's the kind of anger that Jesus felt when he went into the temple and saw the, the merchants and the money changers taking advantage of the poor people. And Jesus felt that same anger towards hypocrisy, particularly the hypocrisy of the, the Pharisees. Righteous anger is usually felt on behalf of others because of our love for them or our love for God. The second type of anger uh, might be called something like selfish anger because it's the kind of anger we feel on behalf of ourselves. Someone does something or says something to us and we feel personally affronted. It's the kind of anger that is often resistant to forgiveness and reconciliation and if left unchecked can turn into lasting resentment, bitterness and even hate. 1 John 3.15 says, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Yikes. Now the first type of anger, righteous anger, will usually drive us to do something constructive. To right the wrong that is being done to others. Many social justice movements and charities are birthed out of righteous anger. Whereas the second, second type of anger, the selfish kind, is a lot more dangerous because it has the potential to drive us into destructive behaviors, either to others or to ourselves. Having said that, though, the reality is people can be just annoying sometimes, can't they? And there are multiple opportunities every day to be angry at someone about something. Yet in those moments of anger, Jesus warns us to be very careful. Because when selfish, or we could call it fleshly anger, rises, we find ourselves on the cusp of doing or saying something that we later wish we could take back. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, chapter 4, verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Because it's all so easy to do so when we're angry, isn't it? Someone messes with us, and we want to strike back. A few weeks ago, Angela and I were able to spend a week or so uh, with her brother and his family who live at the foot of the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina. We'd never been there before, so we were eager to explore as much as possible and hike a few of the trails there. And on the Tuesday of our visit, under warm and sunny weather, we drove out to a place called Chimney Rock to climb the 500 or so stairs up to the top of this large, unusual-looking outcropping. And then continue even higher to the top of a 400-foot waterfall. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of stairs. <laughs> now, having gone up all the stairs, we found ourselves on a level trail. And as we walked along this level trail, we passed by three young men who were hooting and hollering about an encounter they had just had with a rattlesnake a few yards ahead of us. Now, while I didn't want to get too close to the snake, I did want to see it because... 
Well, I've never seen one in the wild before, and it's just the way I am. I had to see this snake. So uh, as we got closer to it, we heard this unmistakable and uh, rattling in the woods that could only be one thing. And on for further exploration, and against Angela's wishes, who was still going up the trail, um, I had to go in to the leaves and have a look. And I, I walked into the tree. <laughs> it's okay, I'm still alive, you can see them. <laughs> so I walk into the leaves, and, and the, the noise gets louder and louder. And then there I see it with its tail sticking straight up in the air, just rattling away 19 to the dozen. Now, I don't know what those young men had done to that snake, but it was clearly very angry about it. They had provoked it, and it was angry, and it had some venom, ready to give that venom away. Its anger was triggered, and everybody else better watch out. And that happens to us. We can be mad as a rattlesnake sometimes, can't we? And uh, everybody else better watch out, and they better not cross our path, because we've got some venom in us, and we're all too ready to give it to someone. Now, humans don't have fangs, of course, but we do have tongues. And the venom that we dole out rolls off of it in the form of bad words, or insulting words. And so Jesus says, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, will be subject to the Sanhedrin, and anyone who says, you fool, will be subject to the fire of hell. The problem of unrestrained anger is that it escalates. And so do the consequences. Jesus points this out by using uh, the example of the court system of the day, being angry with someone for whatever reason uh, and unable to reconcile with them would result in one of the parties taking the other one to court. And it would be a local court um, along the equivalent of maybe of our Court of Queen's Bench of Alberta in downtown Calgary. But verbalized insults, personal insults, were a different matter entirely. Those would have been taken to the Sanhedrin, which was the highest court in the Jewish world and the equivalent uh, to our Supreme Court today. The word raka means something like empty head or airhead, an expression of contempt and an attack on a person's intelligence. Again, by today's standard, those names don't sound like much. We've probably said them at some point in our lives. But in those days, name-calling wasn't brushed off so easily. In an oral culture like that of ancient Israel, words were taken very seriously. Personal insults quickly became a legal matter. And uh, they were kind of along the lines of, today's libel or slander or defamation of character, where a person's reputation could be permanently damaged and their ability to find employment diminished. And as a consequence, 
the offender could find themselves standing before the Sanhedrin, where a ruling would be doled out in favor of the injured party, and the name caller would have to pay damages. Serious stuff indeed. But not as serious, apparently, as saying to somebody, you fool. The Greek word translated as you fool in our English Bibles is moros, which uh, it's a word similar to raka, but up a few notches on the scale of insults. Uh, basically saying that a person is completely brainless and that they've lost their grip on reality. Moros, of course, as you've probably guessed by now, is the origin of our English word moron, which again today we kind of throw around loosely and jokingly, but in the Hebrew culture of the day, it was pretty much the chief of insults, implying that the person being called moros or you fool no longer has any worth at all as a human being. In our previous sermon series, Becoming Human, Pastor Lane reinforced the truth that all humans are created in God's image. And when we allow unbridled anger to grow in the heart and escalate to the point of no longer seeing any value in the person we are mad at, we're not only insulting that person, but also the image of God in them. It's not only a character assassination against the person, but against God as well. Because we're implying that God has made a completely useless person, and that even the image of God in that person is useless. The difference between calling somebody Raka and you fool is that Raka is an attack on the person, whereas you fool is an attack on God himself, otherwise known as blasphemy in those days, which sheds a whole different light on this passage of Scripture, doesn't it? And it helps us understand why Jesus warns so sternly against calling someone you fool and why the consequences are so grave. Now, after visiting the, the top of that waterfall at Chimney Rock, Angela and I came back down the trail the way we had come. And uh, as we approached the spot where the rattlesnake had been, we heard that unmistakable rattling sound once more. Now, it must have been more than, more than an hour since we had passed by going up. And you'd have thought that that snake would have calmed down and moved on by now. But there it was, still rattling just as hard as it was when we passed it going up. And we can be like that, can't we, sometimes? We can be reluctant to let things go and slow to move on. Admittedly, like that rattlesnake, we can't help but have those initial feelings of anger. They're just a, an involuntary instinctual response, but unlike that rattlesnake, you and I can help what comes next. God has given rattlesnakes only instinct to control what happens next, but he has given you and I the ability to think it through, to make rational choices. 
seeing red and boiling blood, does not have to control what comes next. We can choose to go down that path, the path of bad thoughts, offensive language, embitterment, hatred, and ultimately murder in the heart. Or we can choose the path of grace and mercy, recognizing that we are not perfect in this either, and that we too do things, probably more than we realize, to offend other people. And once we come to that place of grace, mercy, and realization of our own weaknesses, we can then take steps in making it right with the one who offended us. Not just for their sake, but for ours also. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The New Living Translation puts it this way, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Not only the course of actions we take, but the consequences of those actions as well. You have heard that it was said to the ancients, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now this uh, is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. It's murder in our Bibles, but in the Hebrew it was ratsash or something like that, which comes from the idea of dashing to pieces. To murder somebody literally meant to dash them to pieces or dash their life to pieces. Now you and I know that we don't have to actually physically murder somebody to dash them to pieces. Proverbs 18.21 tells us that the tongue holds the power of life and death and those who love it or love to use it will eat its fruit. If you and I were to think back through our life, there's a good chance that some of the moments that stand out to us uh, the most are those when somebody else's anger was directed towards us. Moments when something was said to you in anger and, uh, and you, were, you were damaged inside. Your soul was damaged and the, the spirit of your heart uh, was injured. There's really no disputing it. The tongue can be a very venomous and destructive force. But it can also be a very constructive and healing force. Anger doesn't have to lead us down the path of death that Jesus warned us about. It can also, if we take control of it, lead us down a path that brings life. And Jesus goes on to tell us how to do that in the therefore verses that follow our passage. In Matthew 5, 23 to 24, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar in front of you. In front of the altar, sorry. And first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gifts. Now notice how Jesus has flipped this around here. In verses 21 to 22, he's talking to the one who is offended and angry. Yet from here onwards, he starts talking to the one who committed the offense. And he's not talking about two different people. He's talking about one and the same, you, me. Because we can be both the offended and the offender uh, at any given time. 
And when we've been the offender and we are aware of it, the responsibility is on us to take the first step to making it right. Why? Because it's just as wrong to let somebody else's life be harmed by their anger towards you as it is to allow your life to be harmed by your anger towards them. And Jesus stresses the importance of dealing with the issue by giving it a place of high priority in the example he gives in verses 23 and 24. An example that would have sounded wildly extreme to the hearers of his day. In those days, uh, believers were required, regardless of where they lived, to offer sacrifices at the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, imagine for a minute that you are one of those believers back then. One that lived, say, uh, in Galilee, which, uh, which was a three-day walk to Jerusalem. So, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. As the time of the sacrifice approached, you would have made arrangements in Jerusalem and paid for accommodations for the time you were staying there. Then you would have had to travel for three or more days uh, to get there, overcoming who knows what hurdles, a lame donkey or screaming kids. I'm sure they screamed just as bad traveling back then as they do today. And, uh, and then on your arrival at the temple, you, you suffer the humiliation of knowing that you're being ripped off by the money changers as you, as you procure the right currency to use in the temple. And then you pay an exorbitant price for the appropriate animal for the kind of sacrifice you're going to make. And then finally, after, uh, after all of that and waiting in line for hours, because everyone came to make their offerings at the same time, your turn comes and you find yourself exhausted, yet relieved that you are kneeling at the altar, ready to give your offering. When suddenly, something pops to mind. You remember that somebody has something against you. Now, according to Jesus, what are we supposed to do? in that moment. Now, don't answer that. Just think about it for a minute. You've gone through all that effort. You're at the altar. Something pops to mind. What's Jesus telling you to do? I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm thinking, Jesus, you cannot be serious. After going through all of that to get to the altar, I'm not going to back out now. Surely I can finish making my offering and then go make it right with the offended person. Now, with everything that Jesus says, we have to be careful not to make new laws out of it. Because Jesus didn't come to make new laws, remember? He came to fulfill the law that was already in existence. And in using this example, this extreme example, for the hearers of his day... In the context of anger, he impresses on those listening the importance of dealing with anger and keeping a clear conscience. A clear conscience in our relationship with other people, and by extension, a clear conscience in our relationship with God. 
Basically, the point Jesus makes is this. Don't bother going through the motions of trying to make things right with God when you haven't made the effort to make things right with your brother and sister. Romans 12, 18 says in the context of offenses and doing what's right, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, don't make excuses and don't wimp out. Do everything in your power to make things right, regardless of who started it in the first place. There's too much at stake not to. Now, when I started looking into this uh, scripture and preparing this sermon, I thought Matthew 5, 21 to 22 was a hard saying because it, the, sea, the, the inequality between the crime and the punishment I thought it was hard because it didn't make sense in my head. But by the end of my study, I found this hard saying to be hard for an entirely different reason. It's hard to do. Dealing with our anger in a godly manner requires courage, humility, honesty, and at times, inconvenience, or even loss. And because anger brings with it a dark cloud that prevents us from seeing what's in our own heart, we need the Holy Spirit to pop things into our minds, to open our eyes to see the situation clearly and objectively, and to help us walk through the intricacies and the tender ground of hurting hearts. So if God pops something into your mind, about an offense someone has against you, or shows you that you have an offense that you're holding on to against somebody else, don't harden your heart to it. Fall on God's grace and mercy by confessing to him, taking it to him, and then take the first step to making things right. Let's pray, and then we'll take up our offering. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for your deep wisdom and the things that you said that we have recorded in our Bibles. We confess, Jesus, that sometimes these are hard things for us. We don't understand them or we don't want to do them. And so, Lord, we, we come to you this morning in humility and, and we just admit our weakness, our human weaknesses to you. Lord, and we, we confess that we need your help specifically to do this one, Lord, to deal with our anger and keep things straight with our brothers and sisters, families, friends, people we work with. They're going to rub us the wrong way, guaranteed. Lord, help us to be mindful when that happens and that we remember what you said, Jesus about getting angry and, and the escalation of it. That we can catch ourselves and control ourselves in the moment and do the right thing. Do what you would have done, Jesus, handling that situation. We thank you that you've made us emotional beings and that we do get to feel all these wonderful emotions. But we need your help when it comes to anger because we can quickly spiral out of control. And so, Father, we, 
We come to you with open hearts and open minds and open arms to receive your grace and mercy and your strength uh, this week as we, as we go into the world and encounter who knows what. We uh, thank you, Lord, for your blessings, the many blessings you give us, Lord. We, we are so grateful. Our hearts are filled with gratitude. And uh, this morning we offer uh, our gifts back to you, Lord, with humble hearts. And, and, and grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.